to feel loved by somebody, whether they're dead or alive, is a, is a powerful thing. And when you have felt love from somebody, and even if they die, that love doesn't die, it just changes. Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from ordinary people on their experience of loss, how their grief impacted them, and what helped them to find their feet again. Loss can really have such a profound effect on our lives, and it is my hope that Shapes of Grief will provide comfort, hope, and inspiration to our listeners so that together we can get more comfortable talking about grief. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, so please do donate, like, share and review. It really does keep us going. For more grief resources and grief support, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. appreciate you giving up your time. Helen is based in the west of Ireland and works for Cancer Care West. Helen is a psycho-oncologist. Helen, would you tell us what is a psycho-oncologist? A psycho-oncology is essentially the psychological treatment of the stress caused by a cancer diagnosis. Like I see both cancer patients and their families and carers. And I work in a, a very busy service here in Galway City. There are four psychologists working. And we have a multidisciplinary team. So that means that we have oncology nurses, psychologists, counsellors. We have physio and then various other people coming to give us service like complementary therapy, medical lymphatic drainage. So it's all geared towards treating cancer patients from the time they're diagnosed until the end of their journey with cancer. And so we see people right from the, the early diagnosis right through to the end of the journey, whether that's complete cure, whether it's it's uh, that they get cancer back sometime in the future, or perhaps that they have a poor outcome of cancer and they might die. So we, we see people at every stage in that journey. Yeah, so that, that's essentially what I do. We offer psychological support. And I suppose with my background in grief counselling and bereavement, like I, I do tend to think of a cancer diagnosis as a loss. Not a loss in terms of kind of bereavement and death, but a, a loss in terms of the, the losses you, you kind of endure because of the amount of changes that can take place in somebody's life because of a cancer diagnosis. And that's changes in things like, you know, their their physical well-being, their psychological well-being, changes in relationships, changes in kind of worries about the future, and particularly changes around the assumptions we make about our lives. So, for example, a lot of people assume that they're healthy today and they will continue to be healthy. And when you get cancer, the first thing that happens is that the assumptions by which you lived by previously might not work anymore. As for a lot of our clients would really struggle with kind of the whole thing about just what you said there exactly, that sometimes when people look well on the outside, people tend to think they're well on the inside. And even though, thankfully, cancer is a disease that's becoming more and more seen as a chronic illness, which people live with for a long time. And for a lot of people, they could get complete cure from cancer. But I suppose there's a small number of people who really struggle with it. And even people who do well with cancer would say generally that it takes two or three years to come to terms with a diagnosis. Because for a lot of people, when they're diagnosed initially and they're coping with that illness, there's so many much medical treatment going on. So they're going for perhaps chemotherapy, going for surgery, and then having radiotherapy. And so there's no time to process what happens to them. And then when all that treatment's over and the doctor says, you know, you've done really well, you're more or less cured and you're off your corner of your life. People often don't feel like that, even though they may look well. The doctor has given them this really positive news. But unfortunately for a lot of people, that's when they have to do all the work psychologically because that's when they have to process what happened to them. And that's when they realise the amount of changes that have taken place. So for example, you take something very specific like fatigue and cancer. Fatigue is one of the most common outcomes, not of the cancer, but of the treatment. So people who were generally maybe able to walk, say, for an hour before and really enjoy something like that or go out and cut the lawn in one go or do all their housework, now find that they have to pace themselves and really take their time in terms of how they plan. So instead of doing something just on the spur of the moment now they have to plan everything and people find those kind of changes really difficult so a lot of adaptation to cancer for people to go through over a period of time and that's really what causes psychological distress is 
am I the same person as I was before this happened to me? And of course, to, to, a, lot, to a large extent, people are the same, but there are these subtle changes that happen that people really have to take time to terms. It's a process. That would certainly be my experience as well. I find that I often see people who are a year or two after coming through an illness, perhaps finding themselves cancer-free for the first time in a few years. But it's at this time, with the illness behind them, sometimes that the full psychological impact really hits them. And when the events of the illness and the treatment that they've been through really need to be processed because often during treatment, we're just in survival mode. We're getting from one point to another without fully being able to process what exactly is going on. Yeah, because at the beginning, you're very taken up with surviving and and being cured and and having good outcome medically but then it's, it's like it's, as time goes on and you get that you get that result then you start thinking about the other things that we all take for granted and even things like relationships can come under huge strain with cancer diagnosis because maybe somebody feels I didn't get the support I thought I was going to get like if I had a euro for every time someone says to me the people that I thought would best support me kind of disappeared or like weren't available for whatever reason and the people I thought never I would never count them or really stepped up to the mark so it's a very cancer has a, 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 an impact on everybody on the patient first of all obviously but also on the people that are in their sir, friends and family yes you mentioned a word there Helen anxiety and it's certainly a word that comes up very often when we talk about grief um, I see it in my private practice all the time how our nervous systems respond to the loss or to the change that we're going through and a lot of people would experience acute anxiety following, you know, a diagnosis or a bereavement or a separation. In that case, Alan, how would you support someone who's riddled with anxiety following a diagnosis or following a bereavement? Like what sort of tools or support would you offer someone who is suffering from anxiety or panic attacks? I mean, it's just so prevalent and common today so i suppose anxiety is a very prevalent disease and i suppose we live in a society that's quite anxious actually all the time and i suppose there are lots of things going on in the world and you know sometimes i think are we living in a particular era where all this stuff is going on but i suspect if you lived into a second world war the same things were happening maybe what's really different now is we all know about it much quicker so when something happens we we we, i always think about sky news so sky news tells you what it's going to be doing before it does it and reports the news as it happens and they dissect it afterwards so there's a lot of news and stuff coming at you and I actually don't think our psyche is able for that kind of constant barrage of information and opinions and it's very stressful for a lot of people and I, th- and I think I suppose if you look at where this anxiety come from so we just take grief for example I suppose the anxiety that's caused by a grief event whether it's a bereavement or whether it's some other kind of grief and it's caused by some life event I guess I often think that anxiety comes because we we all really in a way quite childlike what i mean by that in this case is that we all love security and continuity we like to know what's going to happen next and when your your drug is pulled out from under you because something very unexpected happens if you take a bereavement for example a lot of people for a long time in bereavement literature there was kind of a belief there that if you were prepared for someone's death you were in a safer place and in fact the research nowadays says it's very clearly there isn't really very much difference between expecting a death and and having a sudden bereavement experience and the reason for that probably is that I think all deaths are sudden, because even the ones we expect can come unexpectedly. And often people live even longer than maybe you think they're going to live. So I think bereavement and death and loss are very uncertain events in our lives anyway. And I think uncertainty causes anxiety. So the more uncertain you are about what's going on, the less you can rely on the old things that you relied on. So the anxiety goes up. And I guess I suppose if you said, that, well, how would you help somebody? And I think there's a few things that you do to help somebody. I think, for example, if we're so so we're, we're seeing families here, maybe we're expecting a parent maybe to die, cancer, we would often say to them, I suppose just the whole thing about what you you want to keep everything the same for these children so nothing changes too much. And um, and it's the same exactly with adults, even though we're talking about children there, like you want to keep as much other things the same as possible. So like continuity is really important. And then I also think I, I have kind of a few stock phrases, I guess, these people. And one of them is even the depths of despair, even when you're really anxious, is a kind of a very sound psychological piece of advice is that when you do something, you feel better. So sometimes I encourage people to do things, even though they don't feel great about doing them. That might be something simple as going off for a 10 minute walk, just to go and do it because being active helps actually 
funny enough. Nothing lasts forever. You know, I say to people, like, I know this is really bad today and it seems like it's never going to end. But in fact, this too will change. It may change, it will change, it won't keep the same shape. So you have to be hopeful that things will get better. I think the encouragement of hope is really important in anxiety. Encouraging people to be hopeful that things can get better, even in very small ways. Because when you're really desperate and when you're really at your lowest ebb, you kind of also lose hope. And I think that's a very difficult place for people to be in. So I guess all those kinds of things really help i think as well obviously there are some approaches we use with anxiety like for example i suppose the most common one is cognitive behavior therapy where we really get people to i suppose educate people to really see that a lot of our anxiety comes from our thoughts and and they cause our anxious feelings so that when you can change your when you can reframe something and actually see some kind of a different way or, or look like look at it the way maybe somebody else would look at it often that reduces the anxiety a bit profound loss can rock our inner world it's confusing, life-altering, and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools, or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief-trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. But I mean, I think anxiety and grief, particularly on in grief, is very normal because we're really anxious because everything is, seems very different. Yes, that's so true. And I'm wondering specifically, Helen, also about trauma, where there's been a traumatic death and perhaps someone is stuck in the trauma or the shock of the events, you know, replaying the story over and over again in their mind. Often that's what happens when... You know, we've had a traumatic experience. So I, I guess a few ways of doing that. I mean, I suppose the first thing is to really assess somebody really well and find out, you know, make sure that there is that they're able for the treatment. Because sometimes we don't want to do any harm either. So sometimes it's about holding somebody and let them actually just develop a really safe relationship with the person maybe they're seeing for counselling, so that they feel safe to go into that trauma. Because when you have trauma, you're terrified to even look at it, to even take it out of its pocket because you think this is going to overwhelm me and maybe you know really do me damage. So I suppose it's just to get a very safe environment to do that in and I suppose just a very gradual approach as well I mean I guess I would use a lot the whole thing about revisiting the trauma in a very safe way so like maybe it's maybe getting someone to do some relaxation or visualization first really before they start so that they start off in a relaxed state and then maybe to just gradually get them to revisit that trauma it's a really good technique called the rewind technique that we use here and that is for people who've had traumatic experiences and where they have really kind of almost like tending on post-traumatic stress over that and we often would use that technique because it, it's a very gentle way of, of reintroducing them to the trauma of what happened i guess i would be of the school of psychology that believes that you have to go back and visit that trauma to really get over it you can't just leave it hanging there or you can't avoid it or you can't deny this happened because generally those things tend not to work i was working with someone this morning who's very traumatized by the death of, of, her, of one of her children and I mean, she really has created a, a probably what we would call a shrine in her house to this person who died, a shrine, so that she only is happy when she's in this room because she feels she's with him. And that's not doing anybody any harm. It, it probably is doing her other children some harm in the sense that they're happy about that. But I was really trying to gently say this morning, you'll, you'll feel safe in this room because you're with your son. And that's what's going on here. And just really gentle ways saying like, you know, what would we like to go and do for five minutes go out of the house and, and not be in that room and what would that be like? And just really gradually because I, I worry about that, that she's becoming, finding it more and more difficult to leave her house. And so you don't want to develop something else along with the trauma. Um, and it's, it's kind of become well established because she's just started coming for help and she's had this for about three years. So you know, it's to un, it's to untangle all that stuff and take a while. But yeah, so trauma is, is a very, I mean, I think all deaths are traumatic, even the ones that seem like they're more normal in inverted commas. Loss as an event in our lives it's very traumatic anyway. Even even losses that are not permanent can be very traumatic. I mean, you know, if your child leaves home when they're 25 or they move abroad or something, that's trauma, even though you know that might be for the best for everybody, but you're still traumatised by that loss. So I think trauma is a very, can be a constant feature in our lives in some ways. Not to the extent that it requires treatment, either, but just that we are, we are upset. Our psyche is upset when something like that happens. Helen, one of the reasons that I got in touch with you specifically is... Well, I know that you're a fountain of wisdom and I came across an article recently on a mental health website, a good website here in Ireland, and it was about the five stages of grief. And I was quite shocked, really, that this very outdated theory is still being written about. Not only was it up on the website, which is quite a prominent one in Ireland, 
but it's been shared over a thousand times. And, you know, this did make me balk. And you would know why I would find that concerning. But perhaps a lot of our listeners wouldn't know. Um, and you've a lot of knowledge on different theories of grief. And I'd love you to share some of that wisdom with our listeners today who might find it useful, Helen. So I guess, well, I'll I, 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 I give you a kind of chronological history about where I come from. So when I started out working first in 1979, which is now um, 40 years ago, actually this year, I was very taken with the stages of grief and I thought it was a fantastic way of approaching the whole thing about helping people who are grieving. And I guess what changed my idea about the stages of grief, and I, 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 when I say this, I'm in no way uh, dismissing the work that, is, for instance, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did, or Colin Murray-Parks, or... You know, any of the really well-known authors who buy into st- who are who are really were into the stages of grief. But I guess the problem for me was that the clients I was working with weren't relating to the stages. That was a difficulty that I encountered first of all. Because they were saying, I don't want to, you know, I don't feel angry with my my person who died, or I don't want to say goodbye to this person. I don't want to, I don't really want to resolve my grief as in it's over. I want to do some do it some other way. And that led me down the path of really looking at like what else was out there in terms of what we knew about grief and loss. And then I came across this really interesting article by Silver and Worthman, uh, which is kind of one of the similar papers, I would say, in terms of our understanding of loss and grief today. And from that article, I really discovered that there were other ways of looking at grief and that what uh, the stage of the grief told us, which is you know, this very set, manualized way of going through grief, that that actually doesn't work for everybody. And that a lot of people don't, buy, don't fit into that framework. And that really got me thinking. So that led me down the path doing my own research on grief and I, and I did do a longitudinal study on, on on spousal and partner loss in that was published in 1998. I guess from that I was even more convinced than ever that the stages of grief didn't fit a lot of people that I met in that study or my clients. There are a few things wrong with the stages that I don't that I that I didn't find helpful. The first thing is that it's very prescriptive. So it kind of tells people, you know, these are the stages you go through them in a linear fashion, that is one after another, and uh, you come out the other end and you're kind of better than ever to commas. And I guess the first thing is that a lot of bereaved clients would identify with the fact that they don't really feel it's linear and they're back and forth between the feelings all the time. So they're, some days they're angry, some days, you know, they're, they're kind of almost what they would call like normal, not too sad. Some days they feel like I can never get on my life. Sometimes they feel like I can never do that. So the stages are very prescriptive. And what really was coming out for me and for a lot of other people that started to read around that time, people like Margaret Strieber, Wolfgang Strieber, people like Robert Nehemiah that I know you have on, a, on another interview, they were really saying to us very clearly, you know, there's a very, very varied, very rich variety in how people respond to grief and they don't really fit in these very strict categories of stages of grief and that was exactly what I was finding as well so I guess for that reason I was really and I, you said there you found that um, you, you found that website of the stages of grief are prominent on it and I think they are because I think that's what I may dare to say so I think it's kind of lazy on our part sometimes because I think it's very easy to have this manual that you follow and therefore a lot of people come into us even nowadays and say to me you know I've, I found this book on the stage of the grief or my GP said to me you know have you heard of the stage of the grief because like if you fit into that neatly it's very easy grief is not an easy place to be and it's not it doesn't there, there is no one framework that, that answers all the questions so for me grief and the response to grief and bereavement is a very multifaceted, very rich kind of, very much independent on the individual who's experiencing it. So, so many things affect grief. There are so many factors like what kind of relationship did you have with the person who died? How did that person die? Was their death expected? Had you unresolved issues with them? What was your own earliest first experience of grief? There are so many things that affect that grief that we cannot say that out there somewhere, you know, something like the stage of the grief is going to fit everyone we need. We meet. That is an unrealistic viewpoint, I would say. So for that reason, I really, I still worry a lot. People say to me, you know, the stage, and, and, and actually in saying this, I am also very aware of the fact there are some people from the stage of the grief completely fit. And they like that idea. They like that journey to grief that's very, you know, I follow this structure and I come out the other end and I'll be fine. And if, you, if that works for you, I'm not being prescription saying they, they shouldn't work, but I'm certainly saying there was more than just the stage of the grief as a way of looking at, at how what we go through when we're grieving. And we all know, I mean, everyone listened to this um, interview today and ourselves, we've all had our griefs in our lives and we know what works for us. And actually, I always say to people, you are the expert in your own grief. As long as you're not harming yourself or anybody else 
whatever you're doing is okay. So for example, in Ireland, we've got a tradition of, you know, maybe going to the grave. Some people absolutely find great comfort in going to the grave. Other people don't go near it. Like they go once for the person is buried and never go back. There is no right way to be in grief. And that's why for me, the stages are too prescriptive. It's like this journey you follow and you don't do it this way. The really difficult thing about the stages is that it's not so much your advice to do it that way, but if you're not doing it that way, there's something wrong with you. So it makes you very, it makes your grief with some other abnormal, which I think is a terrible shame because there are very few abnormal griefs that are of that nature. Of course, people get stuck in their grief all the time and they get stuck in the, for, for the facts that I talked about there. Something in their story has made them have this unique response to loss. But the idea that if you follow the stages, you'll be, you'll be better. And if you don't follow them, there's something wrong with you. I find that very difficult for a lot of grieving people. And actually, I find it really difficult for the people I meet in my work every day and have all, you know, have mixed for the last you know, 40 years almost that they are very clearly saying to me, you know, this is not what it was like. But having said that, I'm very mindful of the fact that we owe a huge debt of gratitude to people like Elizabeth Cooper also wrote stages because she was actually very, uh, she was very instrumental in bringing attention to that whole area of life that had been really up to that time, you know, kind of forgotten about. Yes, it's also important to say that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the stages for terminally ill people, people who were dying, people who were coming to terms with the end of their life. The stages theory was never meant for bereavement. And I did hear that she was quite upset that they were applied to bereavement because it was never her intention. And she got quite a lot of slating about the stages of grief, although she'd never written about stages of grief. She'd written about stages of coming to terms with terminal illness. Yes, because in the last book that she published with David Kessler before she died, like she talked about the fact that she'd never meant them to be for, for bereavement. Although I suppose as they've got adapted, I mean, they got adapted into the whole grief response over time. And I suppose in a way we didn't, there was enough done to kind of say these weren't meant to be for this. These weren't meant to be for bereavement. They're meant to be for somebody facing their own death. And even in that area, if anyone's listening to this, you know, people are caring for someone who is facing their own death. Even for them, the stages of grief don't, don't always ring true as well either. You know, there they are, they're, we are all individuals we're all unique and for that reason we have unique responses to loss and, and responses to trauma and, and that's that's what makes the world a great place because we're all very individual but I mean I suppose trying to write a prescription for it can be difficult yeah thanks for that Helen so moving on to one of the other myths about grief is the notion of letting go or getting over somebody or moving on so letting go is a word that we hear a lot um I remember I was invited to lecture some master's students, nothing to do with bereavement, um, but in healthcare. And I was asked to prepare a class on grief and letting go. And I was horrified. Um, I think it was our friend, Dr. Freud, who introduced the importance of grieving and then letting go or moving on. But he changed his mind about this. Would you speak about that, please, Helen? So, so I just, when you say the words, I think what I'm saying to myself, what exactly, what exactly do we mean by letting go? So does letting go mean, for example, being able to live your life as if this person never mattered to you? Which clearly is not what, what it should mean. I mean, I think letting go is a very medical concept because it means getting better. That's that's how, how I think about the term in, in that context means of letting go and actually I don't think the people who we really love people who really mean something to us we never let go of them and I don't say that in a negative way because I think it's a very positive thing but what I mean is this as soon as as soon as you form a relationship with somebody so think of a, a mother who has a baby or a father who has a child and that child's born and as soon as you see that child you start to you know, in the womb for the mother, they're already have, having that relationship. But you have that relationship, and it's been it's been strengthened. It's been you know, it's it's a bond that's been developed there, a bond that nobody can really break ever. So when someone dies, we have bonds with people when they die. We don't ever really break those bonds, but they change. And what I mean by that really is that as soon as somebody is in your life and they really matter to you and you love them, you, you can never, even if they go out of your life, either because they die or because relationship ends for some reason or other you will still carry them with you in your heart you never lose because they have influenced how you are as a person so their influence is on even after they die and i know i think of my father who died in 1979 he, he's actually he's 40 years dead uh, this year and he, he he is as important to me today as he was then but in a different way what i mean by that is that if something happens in my life like something really good happens like i you know when i have my children or you know i got a degree or i got some really some big success i'd say i wish my dad was here to hear this and when something went wrong i'd say i wish he was here he would help me so that he he's never out of my life not in the 
nothing a constant reminder or nothing went to distress to me, but it, he is still very much present to me, even though he's been absent for 40 years. So I think the presence of somebody you love never goes out of your life. I think that's a really, and I would say of all the things that I've worked with, with clients over the years in terms of, you know, trying to come up with, with ways of being with, with bereavement that, that makes life better for people. Like the thing that's made the most difference is this idea of having still having a relationship with somebody even though they've died. And it's not the relationship you have when they were alive. It's a different kind of relationship. So it's a relationship where having had them in your life is really important so that they, their influence lives on. And I think you probably heard me talking before about this idea. I truly believe this, probably based on experience more than any theories or anything. I think we are all creating legacies when we're here. And I I think the people who've died before us that are important to us have left us a legacy and now we're creating another legacy and carrying that on and so i think when we die we leave that legacy behind us not thinking in terms of money or material goods i'm thinking in terms of actually just the influence we leave in the world after us and people who are i was a great admirer of leonard cohen and i listened to his music for many years and even though he's he died and I was really sad about that. When I listened to his music, I, I can be trans- transported to another place. I think a relationship a bit like that. When you really think about someone that was really important to you, you can be transported back to that time. And there can be a lot of comfort in that for a lot of people, particularly after the immediate pangs of grief pass. So maybe after the first or second year pass by, and you start thinking about the person and what they meant to you. There can be a lot of comfort in that because you know that they're really, to feel loved by somebody whether they're dead or alive is a powerful thing. And when you have felt love from somebody, and even if they die, that love doesn't die, it just changes. So I, I really believe that, that we have, I don't think we ever let go, and I don't think we should let go, but that doesn't mean we don't, we don't carry on and we don't live our lives. But letting go means, are we getting rid of the person? I don't think we ever, ever would need to, or it would be a good idea to get rid of the person you love or your life. There's so much in what you just said there, Helen. I have a ton of questions I've jotted down. But I'd love to just go back to Freud, the originator of the letting go idea or moving on. And he published papers, you know, early last century that were distributed around the world and people are still being informed by them, I guess. But then his daughter died and he soon realised that what he had written about, you must grieve and then move on or grieve and then let go. He, it was the last thing he wanted to do as a bereaved parent. The last thing he wanted to do was move on or let go of his daughter. So he he very much retracted that theory of letting go. Like generally, you know, when we're bereaved and someone we love dies, we want to hold their memory as close to us as, as we possibly can. I think this is one of the things that's changed in bereavement research and it's a really powerful and a very good thing, which is that when we were writing about bereavement in the early, say, 20th century, and even before that, we were writing from a very academic viewpoint. So we're writing about some things that we haven't really experienced ourselves. And of course, we weren't really, we hadn't really talked to a lot of grieving people. The big sea change of bereavement research came about when people started to do studies and, and bigger samples of bereaved people. And because we were talking to bereaved people, they were able to tell us, well, actually, this is what's really like. I don't want to let go of this person. So Freud is writing. And of course, the other thing is that his similar paper, um, you know, which was published in 1919, I think. The big thing about that paper is that he was writing that about one patient to try and, to try and explain why she had gone on to develop, develop depression. And I think he, he felt that she may have developed depression because she'd unresolved grief. And so I guess from a, from a very medical point of view, the thing was to solve that, you had to let go. But unfortunately... I think that's just a very, very narrow view of grief. And even though that, I'm not saying, again, great debt of gratitude to, to Freud because he was talking about grief and loss. And he was bringing that to the forefront that that could go wrong. And that's important. But I think, unfortunately, when you really talk to grieving people and across cultures, this is the case, we're being told very clearly by people who have been through that experience of grief. And we've all been through grief in one way or another. We know what works for each of us individually. And I go back to what I said already. As long as you're not harming yourself or anybody else, I think it's pretty safe, whatever you do. Um, so I, I don't, I just think we, we can't, the idea that, like, you know, that I think letting go originally was about cure. So it was about curing grief. So if you let go, you cured it. We, I, I actually don't think it's the cure for grief. I don't think there should be a cure for grief. Because I think that if you know somebody and you love them and they loved you, that in relationship endures even when one person is absent. But not in a way that's unhealthy. There, there are ways of enduring relations. But in a healthy way, you can carry that person with you. Yeah, lovely. Finding a way to just embroider it into the fabric of our lives. Exactly, yeah. So I always tell this story because I think it's funny to tell it and I think it highlights what I'm saying. And that is like when you're, when you're in, your, in your 
in your late teens or early 20s and someone says oh you're just like your mother or father when you do that and you hate being reminded that you might be like parents and then when you get older and they have died you, you might say someone says you, you're quite like your mother when you do that you might get some solace out of it because you might want to be like her now because it's a later time in your life so I think you know, our relations change all the time but I think this idea, we, we carry people with us in all kinds of ways like even I can think back to relations I've had in the past they're still not the most important thing in my life but I would still think God that was really good when that happened in that relationship like, I really like that and I think that, that is it's like building blocks of experience and you're putting one block on top of the other but at the core of it all, it's a very circular motion, I think, because at the core of it all is this belief in ourselves that we are basically good people who, you know, can love people and, and we can be loved back. And all relations are about love for me. And I think that that's often why we're in relations, because we, we, we like giving, but we also like receiving. And I think when someone dies, that, that doesn't stop. It just changes the chain. So, you know, there's, there's this really big theory now on grief, particularly in terms of kind of living with grief called continuing bonds. And the continuing bond theory is all about how do you still have a relation with somebody even though they're no longer physically in the world? I think that has been a huge addition because a lot of my clients that I work with would find great comfort in the idea that, you know, I, I can still have a relationship with this person. Not, not the one I want. I'd love them to be here. I'd like to be hear their voice at the end of the phone. But even though they can't be here, I can still have this relationship. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And it takes time to figure that out. I mean, doesn't it, Alan? It takes, takes time to figure out where they are now in our heart. Where can we find them? How do we talk to them now? What new shape does this relationship have? I mean, we can't go from a relationship with someone who's alive to automatically a new relationship with somebody who's dead. It's a process and it takes time to get there. And I think it's very important to realise it's a very good point because I think that this work that we're talking about in terms of continuing bonds and still ha- you know, having a, a meaningful relation with somebody even though they've died, that is, a, that is something that happens later in bereavement. So in the early days of grief, in the, in like in, probably in the first six, nine, 12 months, even up to 18 months, people are very much like just, you know, often go through the motions of living and often would feel like, you know, I have no interest in anything. I've lost my motivation. I don't want to talk to anybody. You know, I, I'm, I'm upset with myself and the world and everybody around me. And often that's just going through the throes of grief. So this work we're talking about in terms of continuing bonds is work that comes much later when you can actually afford to take out the grief and look at it and think, okay, well, what actually does that mean to me? And that for a lot of people, that is two, three years into grief before they do that. So it is later. It is. It is late. And in fact, if, I mean, if somebody came in for counselling, and the first thing the counsellor says to them was, you know, well, let's talk about the continuing bond. Most clients would just get very cross because they want to think, I've got to process what happened to me. I've got to go through the grief. I've got to feel it. I've got to do lots of crying, maybe, or maybe you know, I might do a lot of giving out about something. So you have to do all that work first, and then you can think about how am I going to carry this person with me now into the future. Helen, something else I'm picking up on there. When we started, you said that you're 40 years working with grief and... Yes, <laughs> too long probably. <laughs> you also said that your father is 40 years dead. I'm wondering, is that coincidence or by design that you're doing what you do? No, it's a coincidence because he, he got sick when I was in the middle of my undergraduate studies. And uh, so he died the year I, I graduated. But even at that point, I had decided... You know, I want to go into the area of grief and loss. I've, I've always been really interested. I think probably going back to when I was a, a child myself, because I come from the west of Ireland. And uh, in the west of Ireland, we had a tradition of having wakes at home, which is where you bring the body home and you lay it out in, in the house and place where the person lived. And when I was about five, my grandmother died. And um, obviously she was waiting in our house. And my, my dad said to me, you know, do you want to say goodbye to your granny? And I had to clue, of course, as a kid. But I can remember uh, he said to me, to me, give her a kiss. And uh, she was obviously freezing cold because she'd been dead a, a day or so. And I, I remember thinking to myself, God, what's all this about? And that toss stayed with me. And I suppose I would have seen my mother being very upset at that time after her mother died. So I, I think I've always been fascinated by kind of the whole response to grief. And I think it's about a real, a real desire to kind of, you know, to really hammer home that idea that like grief is a really unique individual thing and that it's not a one size fits all and I think over the years I've, I've been in situations where um you know people can really think they're the expert on your grief and tell you what works for them and like it's the one time in your life when you're kind of public property everybody has kind of an opinion about how you should be and I think that's that can be unhelpful because everyone has their own way of grieving there's no right way to grieve so I've taken it 
as part of my work as a psychologist, I'm, I'm always telling people, you know, you know, follow your gut instinct. You know, if you feel like, you know, I've had clients who've gone to the graveyard at 12 o'clock at night and people think, well, that's a sign of a really unhealthy grief. And yet, you know, that's what they wanted to do. They weren't harming anybody. They weren't afraid to go to the graveyard. So well, that's what works for you. I don't think we should be too prescriptive. What I would really say to people, you know, perhaps people listening to this who are going for counselling, is that the council will give you guidelines. They can tell you what's okay or not okay. They, they, they're, trained, they're trained in grief. They're meant to know about the basics around you know, what a, a good grief response is and what a, a more difficult grief response is. What's normal and what's maybe not so normal. So, for example, when we look at grief here, we think about things like, has this person got a lot of guilt? Have they got a lot of anger? Have they really lost their motivation to live? And think like, there's no, I have no interest. And how long has it, have they been like that? So when you're early in your grief, a lot of people have very strong feelings and they're completely normal. But if you're still having those feelings three or four years later and you're really not picking up the threads of your life, you're not really motivated to do very much stuff like you did before, you really think to yourself, this is going on a bit long and it shouldn't be really, it shouldn't be this intense at this point. So for me, it's the, it's the kind of interaction of how intense are the feelings and how long have they been there. That's what I always look at in terms of assessing how someone's grief is. And if somebody has very intense, intense feelings, and they've had them for a long time, I would certainly be concerned about the grief going on. But I think early in grief, they're really normal. So in, this is what I say, really. All feelings are normal in grief, depending on how long they've had them and how, how, how intense they are. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, so I think, I, I think that's, for me, that's, that's a very kind of simple way of, of assessing your own grief. Because, you know, if, if, you're, if, you, if you're two or three years post-loss, a loss event, and it's still really defining how your life is, if we're still deciding, if you're still, you know, what, make you decide, what makes you decide, would I get up in the morning or would I stay in bed? Would I, you know, will I bother doing this? Will I answer that phone call? Will I go out for coffee with my friends? If that's all being predicated on your response to loss, it, it probably means that you're, you're, you're getting a bit stuck in your grief. And, and we know now, like we know the complicated grief is a real feature in some people's lives. So I suppose making it okay for them to say, actually, my grief has gone a bit wrong and I need some help for it. Because for a lot of time, there was a stigma attached, like you didn't get over your grief. There was this huge push to make people better very quickly. And, you know, a lot of people struggled with like, I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually not getting over it. So it's a very real thing that people have to be encouraged to realise people's grief do, does go wrong and if it does, there's help there. Helen, I'd love to ask you to talk a little bit more about continuous bonds and ways that people find to forge a continuous bond with their loved one. You did mention that it can be down the line when a lot of the acute grieving processes happened that people begin to search for that new relationship with their deceased loved ones. So I've been very privileged over the years of my work to meet people that I've been able to do that work with. And I guess people always surprise and delight me in the ways they come up with having a continuing bond. We're all too chronologically. So I guess a lot of Older people whose parents die often will go back to the place they lived with that parent when they were younger. So they might go back to the countryside where they lived, the house where they lived. They might conjure up the memories around that time. A lot of people would do things like, if you ever notice actually in, you know, if you go into a bookshop and you look at the section on children and loss and grief, you'll often find a lot of parents write books when their children die. And this is a way of having a continuing bond. Because the fear for a lot of parents is that my child died, who will remember them? So the fear of forgetting is a huge thing for a lot of parents because they think, you know, I remember my child, but who else do you remember? So often people have continuing bonds that way. Sometimes people do things like plant a tree. So very simple things. I suppose the whole ritual around sometimes people call their children after the name of the parent who died. That's a continuing bond for a lot of people. Sometimes people really would do things like go to places that evoke memories and then have a conversation with the person who died. They also have a continuing bond because they might really like those traits in themselves that that person who died had. So if somebody says, you know, your father was really generous, or he was, he, you know, your mother was a really great cook, or, you know, whatever the story is, or, you know, they, they were, they really loved reading. Then when we were doing that activity ourselves, we think like, this actually makes me a bit like, make me feel close to my parents who died, because actually I'm doing the same things they did. And all of those kind of negative things that we do really make us have continuing bonds with people when they die. And what is a continuing bond? For me, a continuing bond is really saying, you're physically gone out of the world. I can't hear your voice in present time. I can look at a picture, but I can't see you. But when I have a continuing bond, what I'm saying is, a really important relationship with you, but it's, it's, 
it's a relationship where you're physically absent but emotionally very present. So for me, a lot of continuing bonds is about being emotionally present to the person who's died. So their emotional presence is, is as big as if they were almost as if they were really in the world. Because, for example, you may you may have had this experience yourself. If something big happened in my life, as you know, happens to all of us all the time, I might say to myself, if my father was here, how would he advise me to about this? For me, that's a continuing bond. Because I'm thinking, I'm, re- I'm relying on what I knew about him. And like to like he'd be a really good influence in my life if he was here or I might say you know if my mother was here uh, you know what would she what would she tell me to do about this or my best friend or whoever just has died doesn't really would if that's a really really important relationship in my life and I'm really in bother I can being very traumatized a few a good few years ago about something that happened and I remember thinking to myself when I was you know when I was throws of it I was saying to my, myself I was saying to my father, if you're around, you better help me. I didn't rely on God or... You ever notice, for example, I suppose in Ireland we have this tradition of of having a strong religious belief around death and dying. But when people often say to me now, you know, when someone close to them has died, they say, no, I don't pray to God, I pray to the person who died because I feel they're in heaven or they're somewhere where they can mind me. So that continuing bond is, is that kind of stuff that you're very much influenced I haven't known them in the first place and by the belief that these people are good people in my life and therefore I do not let go of them. So it's, it's, the, it's the exact opposite of what we talked about, letting go. I mean, it's a way of continuing on, but in a, in, a, in a healthy way. And I think it's quite cultural as well, isn't it? Because there are some cultures who do continuous bonds really well. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the Mexicans of Dia de los Muertos and how they celebrate their deceased loved ones and talk to them and they have photographs up everywhere. And they include them in their everyday lives and very much carry their legacies forward with them. But I think as well that's because I think for in Western culture, we have this very much this cut-off point between, between being dead and being alive. And of course, that is two different states of being. But I think in Mexico, which you're talking about there, the day of the dead, it's very much like continuation. It's just that they, they don't see it as this, like they don't see it as this huge thing where you're completely removed from life as they know today they're, 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 you're still part of that life even though you've died that's one of the biggest differences um, in terms of culture I mean we can learn a lot from both Eastern culture you know we have a huge amount to learn in terms of the whole thing around just how we think about death and dying it's a, it's a very big topic and we always of course we're like we're human so we always think the way we see the world is the right way but in fact there are lots of different ways of seeing death and dying and bereavement that we don't think about at all agreed and we're probably only scratching the tip of the iceberg here as well hopefully the way our children will cope with grief and loss in 30 years will be a big improvement on how we do it these days yeah but i think one of the big huge improvements is that i really do think we've embraced the idea of, of kind of talking more and i think that it's much more permissible now to actually say things like I'm sad because before it was almost like there was pressure on to hide the sadness and I think as well as social media has put a huge influence on how we grieve you know the whole thing about you know the, the whole area of kind of you know you know being able to use social media as a way of grieving you know for example you know, there's a company and um, I think in Ireland that you know allows you to watch a funeral remotely if you're in a different country so even though you may not be at it such so you have a presence at it even though you're not in the country I mean they're all really innovative new technological ways of grieving that are going to have a huge influence on how we grieve yes and we've seen the consequences over the last few decades with the consequences of not grieving openly and not talking and not taking care of our health and grief the consequences are too significant i mean People get sick. People can die. And, and I think it's really important, actually, because I think for a long time, you know, the kind of hope or even care piece was an add-on. It was like a, a luxury, you know, that we didn't realise that grief and loss. Like if you think about grief and loss and, and its central place in our lives, in some ways, we're, we're having losses from the time, you know, we're, we're kind of born. Because when you come out of the womb, that is a change in our life. It's, it's, a, it's a lost situation. You're losing that very safe, warm place to be. And you're going into this world and uh, even though your parents are there to guide you and mind you and everything, but it is a change and every loss is an adaptation. And I suppose that's one of the ways of looking at grief and loss is that it's a time of huge adaptation. And we know that some people are more, are better at adapting than others. So, um, you know, we, we really have to think about, and I guess, uh, you know, when I was growing up, grief and loss, you just didn't talk about it. We just did, literally didn't even acknowledge I hardly it happened. And there were so many hidden losses. You know, a woman had a miscarriage. You know, there were all kinds of griefs that 
you know, just weren't spoken about. And that's completely changed. Now, that can only be for the good. Uh, somebody, we, we've changed a lot over the years. And, and, that, and we're learning all the time. We are getting better at it. Maybe sometimes we're slowly, but we are. So I'm just aware that we're coming up on our time together, Helen. I come from Dublin and it wasn't a big tradition here. We're often quite death adverse here too. We buried our dead and got on with it. But I know that in other parts of Ireland where there is a culture of waking the dead, there's a much healthier approach to death. So I suppose I, I, I would have gone to wakes when I was a child. I would have been bought to wakes when I was a child myself and I, I've gone to lots of wakes. When I was doing my study on bereavement, the reason I became interested in waves was because part of that study was that uh, I tracked um, a group of men and women who had been bereaved and I tracked them over the four years after their bereavement. And one of the things that came out of the research, incidentally, wasn't wasn't a big part of the research, but it came out as a, a real finding, which was that people would opt to have a wake at home and the wake to explain what it is to people is really where you bring the body back to the house of the person lived and you, um, you lay them out at home and you spend time with that body and the neighbours would normally come in and friends and family would come in they would spend time with, with, in, in the room where the person was laid out and there would be tea and sandwiches and just time. In fact, the wake is all about time. So there would be a lot of time for telling stories and you know, reminiscing about what that person who died, things they would have done. And I think that is one of the core things about the wake is that it gives people time so I would have talked to people over the years who said to me, you know, my dad died and I went back to, to, to he was waked at home and I went back and I met neighbours or friends that I wouldn't have met otherwise unless it was awake at home. So give them time to hear the stories. And so in my study, what I found out was that people who opted to have awake at home, which was about 25% of the sample, they actually had, had lower levels of depression. They had lower levels of intense grief. Uh, they had better coping skills. And I guess less anxiety people who adopted not to have a wake at home. So that made me think about it. And I guess I don't know why was the wake helpful. And I think it's for that reason that if people felt it gave them time to start to process what happened and also not to be rushed. We tend to rush through grief sometimes, you know, somebody dies on a Monday, maybe they're buried by Wednesday or Thursday. And even though there can be practical reasons why that's the case. Sometimes it's not always to the betterment of the grief part of it. So I guess time's a really important thing. And I don't say this I don't think the wake is for everybody by any, any stretch of the imagination. But I think that sometimes it was a very old tradition we have in this country, and I think there was a place for it. And in our busy, busy lives, the busy schedules we have, where we don't have time for things, that time is a really big factor in grief and loss. So I think if you start there as soon as the, as the death happens and, you, and the person is laid out home, if that's possible, then it's what the what the relatives want and the family want. I think that can be a really powerful time for, for, for the bereaved to kind of really start to process what happened. And just, maybe this is a cultural thing, but in Ireland, where we're, we, particularly I suppose in the west of Ireland, maybe more, more so in the east, uh, we, we have a tradition of going to funerals. And it's amazing, actually, I'm always amazed what someone says to me, I know exactly who was at the funeral. So they might know the name of everybody, but they'll know who wasn't at it as well. Of course, at the time of grief, we're very sensitive anyway. We're very sensitive, to, so we're very aware of what's going on around us. So I think that it's a, I think it's a, an amazing phenomenon. So I do think the wake is a place, if it suits people, it suits everybody, but it does suit friends. It's a lovely message that you're giving there, Helen, about taking time. Like, I know, I know that's one of my regrets when my mother died nearly 14 years ago now. We went straight from her death to making calls, letting people know, organising and planning, letting everyone know that she died. And I really regret not just sitting there with her for a while and being in the moment and, you know, being in that transition space with her and honouring that sacred space. And since then, you know, when I would have friends who are accompanying someone in death, I'd always say to them, if there's one thing I wish I had done differently, it would have been to turn off the phone and just be there with them for a while, you know, before jumping into that instrumental mode of planning. And I think as well, it's a bit like people say to me, you know, sometimes when they're, when they're really grieving very badly, they say, you know, I'm terrified that if I start to cry, I won't stop, that it'll be like a damn bursting and there'll be no control over it. And actually, I think that crying has a level of its own. When you've cried enough, you'll stop. And, and it actually isn't scary. People don't really believe that. Because if you think when we're growing up, maybe we're, we're not encouraged to, to, to cry or express ourselves like that. It's the same at the time at the funeral. You know, when, if you spend 
X amount of time with someone who's, who's died and you spend it in their presence in terms of being with them after they've died. Will I find its own level? So after a while, you know, I've done enough of this now. And of course, the thing is that if you look, if you look at, that's a whole other area in grief. If we look at gender differences in grief and how people respond to grief, like women tend to be more, um, you know, want to talk about it and, and express their feelings. And men often go down the more traditional route of kind of problem solving and being busy, especially immediately, immediately after a death. So like often that time that you, that you don't get to spend is time you can really start to process you know, what's just happened to me here and it's prof- it's a profoundly sad time but I mean I think that I think really sadness is the price you pay for love so like if you really love somebody and they're really important in your life and they go out of your life because they die or because the relationship finishes or whatever I think sadness is a really important part of that journey because but through your sadness you're saying I really love this person and now they're not here and I really miss them and so being sad is very healthy we associate sadness with some kind of a, a negative outcome, which it isn't at all. And that's one of the, so that's how we're all pushed to hide it, get through it, get past it, rush through it. And in fact, we should really just be taking our time because it will find its own level, it won't overwhelm us. Yeah, I see people who are terrified of their emotions and they feel, you know, exactly as you say there, that if I start to let my emotions be expressed, I don't know where it will lead to because this isn't a landscape that I'm used to and I'm afraid that, you know, I'll never stop if I open up. But of course, all emotions come and go, like the weather. They come in, they express themselves, then they move on, making space for the next thing. Like there's always change. We can be certain of that. Nothing will stay, including whatever difficult emotion we have. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, nothing, nothing stays the same. Nothing lasts forever. And there's a lot of hope in that, because I think the, the idea, like and, and on the darkest days of grief, when people are really at their lowest day when they're thinking, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be in this place where I'm really sad all the time. I think to be able to give someone even the smallest piece of hope that this will get better is a powerful message. And I do, I do think my experience after all those years is that for the majority of people, things do get better. So I think it's really important to realise that, that you can't be hopeful about that because I think hope is one thing we all have to hang on to. Well, Helen, thank you so much for your time. There's been so much in this conversation. I hope it's helpful. <laughs> Well, I'm really looking forward to getting it out there because I know it will be. This is best luck with us. Mind yourself. Take good care, Helen, and thank you once again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. If your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You are not alone. Join the Shapes of Grief community in our private Facebook group and find more support and useful links on shapesofgrief.com. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well.